0: Good morning, and welcome to episode 59 of Beekeeping at Five Apple Farm. This is Lee. Thank you so much for joining me today. It is March 18th, and I'm late getting this out. I know that you all know that I'm a nurse, and I know that you know what I've been doing lately, which is working and getting prepared for what we hope won't be coming our way at the hospital, and I hope all the preparations will help. That's kind of a disclaimer. I am not sure how much time I'm going to have coming up I had thought I had been really strategic and had requested PTO time here and there to give me some time with the bees, and I kind of fear that might be canceled. <laughs> Hopefully not. I particularly want to say thank you to all of you who continue to support this podcast, even when I'm erratic, even though this time I actually have a good reason. <laughs> and I want to especially say thank you to the patrons. It means so much to me, you guys over at patreon.com slash that you have put your support behind the podcast. I know that a lot of people are going to be facing some economic hardship in the coming months. I want to say, please, there is no pressure. If you've been a contributor over there and it is going to become difficult for you, do not worry. I just thank you for all your support. It means a great deal to me. So today... I have an interview with my local bee inspector. He covers the western part of North Carolina, Lewis Cobble, and it was recorded back in very late January, which seems like a simpler time. <laughs> but I had held it because he talks so much about swarm prep and I wanted it to be closer to swarm season. I didn't mean it quite to be this late, but he's got a lot of good information in there about swarm season. He also makes reference a couple times to the interview with Tina Sebastian, which is episode 53 if you haven't listened to that. So without further ado, please welcome Louis Cobble. He is an excellent bee inspector, if I do say so myself. He has helped me out when I have had questions or issues in my yard in a way that has been very supportive and very encouraging, and I really appreciate him taking the time to do this interview. So here we go, Lewis Goble. Hello, Lewis, how are you today?
1: I'm good, Lee, how are you?
0: I'm fine, I'm so happy to get you on the phone. I know that very shortly, like so many beekeepers, I won't be able to get anybody on the phone because they'll be out doing the work.
1: Well, I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you for the invite.
0: Well, thank you. Where do you keep bees? I'm in
1: uh, Rutherfordton, North Carolina. So I think it's about 900 feet. And I have about 30 colonies in my backyard. And I have one other colony that's down the road at a at a farm. Just it was a swarm that I picked up and I, people were kind of interested in bees. So I just left that one over there. That's that's where I'm. That's where I am.
0: What when does your season start up?
1: It's, It's starting to ramp up a little bit right now, so they are bringing in pollen on those days when it's 55 or so, definitely seeing a fair amount of pollen coming in. So it's slowly, slowly winding up here in Rutherford not warm enough that I can really get in and do any initial inspections, but I'm looking forward to that 65 or 70 degree day in the next, I don't know, hopefully in the next month and where we can kind of see what's going on in there.
0: Oh man, I'm so jealous of that. I can't wait for that myself. I'm hoping for one of those uh I'm hoping for one of those freakishly warm February days where you get to go in and do that type thing up here in the mountains.
1: Yeah, so on the sunny days I love to kinda of just go out and just walk the apiary and see who's flying and uh, see, you know, see who's flying the most, see who's flying the least and start thinking about, you know, who's probably gonna need the most attention.
0: Well, that leads me to what I would like to ask you some questions about. I know there's so mm-hmm. much material out there for absolute beginners, like their first year. But I feel like that first year is such an oddity in, in every other year in beekeeping. And I wanted to ask you some things about that second year. So the beginners who've gotten a hive through um, to, their, to, to spring, they've overwintered, they're about to come out in spring. What are some of the first things that you do for your spring colonies, to get ready for the season?
1: Really, my first goal is to kind of equalize in the apiary. I've got some colonies that are uh, that appear to be really booming. I've got some colonies that I'm a little nervous about, but I think they're going to pull through. And i got a bunch in the middle there. And so equalizing in the apiary is a great way to take a little swarm pressure off those big colonies and uh, boost those uh, dinks a little bit and try to put everybody back on a on a, le- on a level playing field uh, as we move into spring. That's my first goal as, as I get into those hives.
0: Talk, talk me through how a beginner would go about equalizing. I mean, they may have only two hives or three. How would they equalize those hives? Of course, there's a
1: lot of different ways. Get that cat, and it really depends on... You know how strong one colony is how weak another colony is sometimes uh, we'll talk about some different methods that i have used and, and different things that i'll do in my area if the colony is really really weak i don't feel like i can just give it a frame of bees from a strong colony if i give them a frame of brood there's not enough bees in that weak colony to take care of that brood keep it warm and uh it's really just kind of a waste of brood so in that situation i really want to add bees First, before I add a frame of brood, and one way that I that I do that is simply swapping positions. I'll find my that weak colony that I want to uh, add bees to, and I'll just pick it up and move it to where my strong colony is, and I'll carry that strong colony over to where the weak one was. And the foragers from that strong colony they don't reorient to the new address, so they leave the new address, but they return to the old address where that little dink is sitting. Now you have to be kind of careful here because. So I like to cage the, the queen in that little colony or you know, basically I think of it as doing a new queen introduction. Uh, sometimes if that uh, little dink is, is too small, those foragers will not take kindly to her. So I, I like to uh, just cage that queen for five to seven days and uh, until everybody kind of starts getting along, then I'll let her out. And if I have enough bees in there at that point, then I can add a frame of open brood or cat brood and, and uh, now we're off and run it. If that small colony is just kind of medium small and they have enough bees to cover a frame of brood that I give them, you know, no problem. I'll just give them a frame of uh, I'll I'll find a strong colony, find a frame of capped brood, uh, shake the shake the bees off of that frame and uh, give it to the small colony. And I may at the same time find a frame of open brood and just leave those nurse bees on and give them the open brood as well as the nurse bees. So those are the types of things that I that I do to try to level the playing field.
0: I think that is a perfect example of why if you have multiple hives, then you've you've got the toolbox sitting around to do whatever is needed. But if you've only got one or two hives, it's a mess.
1: Yeah, it really is important to have spare parts in the yard. So I have a real advantage there, uh, having 30 colonies. Actually, I have probably 10 more colonies that I'm really should have uh that i that i really have time for but it's, man it's hard for me i just love beekeeping it's hard for me to, to call but so that's the thing i'm thinking about right now it's like what am i going to do you know what what are my goals uh, for 2020 am i going to try to keep 20 or 30 colonies you know what am i going to do so i'm not i haven't decided how that's going to work. But
0: that's, so that's something that I'm thinking about. I hear you That's I, I, I'm i puttering in my notebook, right? Okay, if, if this is my goal, you know, in beekeeping, so many times, you have to start with your goal and then work backwards. Mm-hmm. The one of the things that several listeners have written in, I asked the question for those who've been in it just a couple of years, what are the the things that now you know, that you wish you had known? And you know, they're beginner, still beginner enough to remember what those things were. And a, an interesting thing, okay. one um, listener said that their B class was really good, but that, that those particular teachers at their class were so focused on mites, which I'm going to talk with you about later here, that she felt like there were some technique, procedure items that didn't get covered as well. And she said in hindsight, she wished it had they had gotten covered better. And Mm -hmm. I do understand those teachers because if you don't manage your mites, you're not going to have any bees to practice your beekeeping skills on. So one of the things that I heard you mention in your podcast, which I thought was a great way to describe it, is queen events. That, that was one of the, uh-huh. yeah, you said one of the top <laughs> ways to lose your bees is to not recognize queen events, I believe. So talk to, talk about some of the queen events that you were thinking of.
1: This is my message to new beekeepers. So those beekeepers that made it through the winter, be very careful with how much you feed. I see a lot of new beekeepers that are just scared to death that their their colonies are going to die and they're not inspecting their colonies they don't know what the food situation is and so to be safe they're just feeding the snot out of them and so they are preventing them from starving to death that's good however this feeding is also stimulating the queen to lay 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 and so uh, where are we going to be in three to six weeks what kind of situation are we going to be in we're going to be in a swarming situation right and so we have to be very careful with this uh uh feeding i think uh I go to clubs and I'll hear people stand up and say, you know, you should just feed until they quit taking it. And I think that is really bad advice. So I see that go south a lot with, you know, it's, it just really drives these, these colonies into a swarming event. So they're, they're starting to increase their numbers. And as we get deeper into the spring, they're going to go into explosive growth. And it is important to monitor, you know, food stores, but you need to be judicious about how you're, you know, about what you're giving them. And so I see that a lot. So they'll feed them into a swarm and then not recognize. I want to, so I listened to your uh, interview with Tina Sebastian the other week, and she had an awesome article in the December American Bee Journal. I hope everyone will go check that out. And one, one thing that she mentioned was to that new beekeepers should learn bee math. And she really nails it there, understanding three six and twelve right so an egg is an egg for three days uh larva is a larva for six days and a pupa or capped brood is capped brood for 12 days right so if we go to our colony and we notice that there aren't any eggs a lot of new beekeepers will just go right to oh i need to get a queen we got to go to the bee store and buy a queen right away and i think you really need to understand bee math and think about what you're looking at and understand what you're looking at. So if you open a collie, you don't see any eggs. Well, what else do you see? Do you see open brood? Do you see cat's brood? So what, what does it mean if I don't see eggs or open brood, but I do see cat's brood? What does that mean uh, regarding the queen, right? So I had a queen mm, 12 days ago but I don't have a queen now. And so, you know, do I need to do I need to run out and buy a queen right away? Well, we probably have one in the works, right? So let's let's kind of let this thing settle. I think another thing that Tina mentioned in her article was uh, to be patient. Like if you don't know what to do, sometimes it's better just to not do anything, right? Let's just sleep on it, maybe ask a mentor trying to try to get uh, a better feel for what's going on. And I think that's really good advice. And it, as a new beekeeper, it took me at least two, maybe three years to learn patience. And I actually, I, I put that on my to-do list for like year number three, be patient. And even with that on my list, I had to really work at it. And so I understand, you know, that it's difficult. We always hear in bee cool. Oh, if you don't have a queen, your colony is swirling the drain. And um, that's true. But a lot of times I think new beekeepers look at a colony and assume that, it, you know, okay, it doesn't have a land queen, but that doesn't mean it doesn't have one, you know, in the hopper coming along, right? So Understanding uh, those queen event and when you need to take action, when you need to sit on your hands, I think that's important stuff. And that bee math that Tina mentioned in her article, I think uh, is important and will serve new beekeepers very well.
0: I totally agree. And believe me, I never thought I'd find myself saying math is important, but because <laughs> I, I was so terrible <laughs> at math in school. But it, it, I love that moment in the yard, you know, a few years in where you finally get it, that if If you just know those Mm -hmm. numbers, you can work out so much stuff on the fly just right then. But I agree with you about if you see, and this I advise new beekeepers too, if you see something weird, you know, which is going to be pretty much every time you open the hive when you're new, don't decide on the fly what to do. Just put it back together. It's it's like a sobriety check. You know, it's like, put it back together, think about it, talk to your mentor, you know, look things up and think about what this hive has gone through, what else you know about this before you make decisions because I'm amazed at I I tend to be so cautious and chicken about everything, but I've seen beekeepers just decide to do things that I'm like, oh my God, you did what? You know, so uh, (laughs) that is, that is very good advice. I love it that you actually put it on your list. That's wonderful.
1: Yeah. So I definitely follow that advice in my own apiary. So I see stuff and I like, oh, what's going on here? And I'll kind of assess the situation and I've got different things that I could do. And I'll just put the colony back together and say, you know, I'm going to sleep on this for a day or two and i'm gonna think about it (laughs) and i'll come back and and then i'll do something but or i might say you know i'm gonna let this thing ride i'm gonna see how this plays out i'm gonna come back next week and and see and there's nothing at all wrong with letting something just sit there for a week and then reassessing i think that's something that um uh that doesn't get done enough yeah
0: I agree, because many times, I mean, like that thinking a person is without a queen, if it is, if there is one in the works, then the next time you open it, you know, there she is. I'm reminded of, um, I think it's Michael Bush calls it the panacea cure, that any time you think you're queenless, just put a frame of eggs and open larvae in there and then watch that frame to see if they make a queen cell. If they don't make a queen cell, then they've got one in the works somewhere.
1: Absolutely. So... This is the thing that I say to beekeepers is you need good information to make good decisions. And so if you're not sure uh, what the status of the queen is, adding a frame of eggs and young brood mark that mark the top bar so you can come back to it in a few days. If it doesn't have a queen cell on it, that's a good indication that you know you need to sit on your hand. If you if you run to the B store and try to introduce a queen here, you're essentially setting your money on fire because they've got it under control. And they're not going to accept your purchased queen. But if you pull it out and they have pulled a queen cell well, now you got some information. They were hopelessly queenless, and now I can decide, do I want to add a purchased queen? Do I want to let them make their own? How how do I want to play it? But you have to have good information to make good decisions. I feel sorry for queen producers that have to field these phone calls. I need a queen right away. If I were a queen producer, I would say, look, this is my strict policy. I do not sell emergency queens. Call someone else. I'll sell you a queen if you want to requeen a colony, like if you want to find your queen, you don't you don't like her performance you're going to find her pinch her and install my queen i'll say your the queen there if you want to make splits with my queens, I'll sell you a queen there. But I'm not going to sell you an emergency queen because I don't believe there is any such thing.
0: <laughs> oh, it's so true. It is so sad. Um, I, I, I tend to just say I don't have any available <laughs> when, uh, right, yeah, at, those, right. at those moments. But I noticed, I think it's Megan Milbreth. I'll put the link on there on her website. She actually has a, so you think you're queenless. And it's like a way to work through it, you know, to decide, which I think is so ethical because, you know, she could just take people's money and give them a queen to kill, but I, I, it's so hard when you put so much work into them.
1: Yeah, that is a great article, but the problem is, you could just sell them a queen, but guess what? Most of the time, that queen's not going to be accepted, and the beekeeper comes back to you and says, that queen was no good, and I think most of the time, that is not the case. It wasn't the queen that wasn't any good. It was the maybe the beekeeper, you know, so that, that's, that's how I... See a
0: lot of these issues. I totally agree. Totally agree. And I want to go back to what you said about um, overfeeding. I mean, I do know, I do understand that so much of beekeeping must sound to new beginners like, you know, cooking with my grandmother sounded to me, which was like, well, you just add a little. How much? Oh, you know, till it's right. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. Yeah. And um, it's very hard to quantify because everything's like, well, you could do this if this is true, but then again, if this other thing is true, don't do that. Do this other thing. So I do know it's overwhelming, and so many times it just takes uh, it takes years to get to where you have a pretty good idea of what's going on. And then still, like you said, there's many a day when I am just puzzled. I just put it back together, make some notes, move on, and then let my brain ponder on it a while and look back on my notes Absolutely. to try to figure out what yeah. the heck, you know, what was the what was the context for for what I'm seeing. So encourage people to i call it tr- uh, trickle feeding because I'm a great fan mm-hmm. of you know mason jars with uh, holes in the lid mm-hmm. that you can just go out and put a little on there every other day when they're when they're building up and I'm thinking of people that have are starting with packages or or starting with small nucleus colonies because what I've seen is um, when I've sold people nukes before is they feed them heavy the bees fill up the comb that they have and then they feel like they need to swarm which is sad in every way because the person's losing their bees mm-hmm. and they're not really big enough, you know, to be viable out there in the world.
1: All right. So I, I, there's kind of two things going on there, I think. You go to bee school and they say, you know, when you take a frame out, make sure you put it back exactly where you found it. And that's not necessarily good advice When we're in explosive growth mode, I mean, and and you're feeding heavy. So you really need to give that brood nest some elbow room or you're really inviting a swarm. Um, The other thing I wanted to go back to, so I I definitely want to give a lot of credit to Tina Sebastian and and her article in ABJ. She had like a a list of, of mottos and we've already covered a couple of them. But number one was good beekeeping is doing what needs to be done when it needs to be done. And so that's very true, but that's very tricky for new beekeepers because they're not sure exactly what they're looking at. But she also says, you know, down her list of mottos, find a mentor that can help you understand, you know, what what you're looking at and help you understand what needs to be done and when. That's critical. I would say if you're thinking about getting into beekeeping, I would recommend that you get a mentor first and hang with them for a year. And then if you're still into it, then you can pay the entry fee to get into beekeeping and, um, I would like for us to have more or have less turnover in the beekeeping world. We have a lot of new beekeepers coming in that think it's going to be, you know, easy and then they get into it and it's not exactly what they thought it was. And I think we could we could uh, temper some of that turnover if, if people were getting their feet wet before they jumped right in. It can be hard, but I, I, t- I, I totally agree
0: <laughs> be because that, you know, so many people, if they've seen like a first year hive and they're like, oh, they're so sweet, aren't they nice? They really need to get in a in a, a grown up yard and open one of those big bubba hives that's just boiling over and, you know, see, just make sure that they know that uh, how, th- how this goes, if you're actually successful, it gets bigger and better. <laughs> yeah. I
1: tell you what, beekeeping in April, May and June, that is, it's easy and fun. Uh, beekeeping in July, August, September, that's a whole different ballgame for me. It's hot the bees are, the colonies are large. They can be hungry and grumpy and it's kind of a different game, but beekeeping April, May and June, that's a real hoot. I mean, I enjoy, it. I enjoy it all of it but I can see where people could get, you know, it could be different,
0: right? I totally, I and I've made some of my worst mistakes in late summer and fall, and I know it was just dreading, you know, dreading going out there and fighting them off and fighting off the robbers to try to Mm -hmm. do what needs to be done. And so there's many, you know, I've lost hives because I just managed to not do that last queen right check of the year, yep. You know, right, so. right. So, okay. So, speak going back to this whole idea of recognizing um queen events. Are there any little um signals that you advise people inside the hive or outside the hive? To watch for, so that when you the the bees are starting to think about swarming, what are the signals that you look for, and teach people to look for?
1: Uh, I'm really just kind of looking uh, during my inspections. Probably, I try to inspect every couple of weeks, you know, in the spring, as long as there aren't supers on. And I'm looking to see, do they have enough elbow room in the brood nest? What do the stores look like and making sure that they have plenty of room. So I like to kind of uh, spread that brood nest a little bit when they start to get crowded and put a piece of uh, a foundation or drawn comb, depending on the time of year. So if it's if it's still a little chilly, I want to make sure I give them some found, uh, drawn comb uh, in the middle of the brood nest to give her some room to lay. If it's uh, for a little deeper in the season, it's warmer. I have no problem putting a piece of foundation right in there and letting them draw that out uh, to try to, you know, keep them busy. If I have a like four or five days of of uh, rainy weather, everybody's stuck at home. I feel like that can sometimes be an issue. Everybody's there. And they can't go out and forage and they're like hey what do you guys want to do today i was like oh well why don't we make a new queen cell so i (laughs) i always like to kind of go through after we've had a a five or six days of bad weather and see what see what's going on there i think the most important thing is you know giving that giving that brood nest room uh, making sure they've got space and i would say when you do inspections you don't need to see the queen what you need to do is see evidence of the queen so egg open brood brood, see all ages of brood and um, understand what that means. So I, I think a lot of people just, they say, Oh, my, my colony just got smaller and smaller. And you go and look and you got laying workers. You know, so, they, you know, they, this colony had a uh, queen event, you know, six, seven, eight weeks ago, right? And this, the beekeeper still hasn't recognized it. So um, that's important. So if you see multiple eggs in a cell um, and no capped brood, that's, that should send up a flag that you may be in a laying work, worker situation. It's not where you want to go.
0: I think the fear of laying workers is what pushes people a lot of time to go out and buy that queen they don't need and, and, and instead of just, you know, putting them... <laughs> Putting the frame of eggs in there to, because isn't it the, isn't it the pheromones off the open brood as well as the queen that prevents laying workers yeah
1: so if you're not sure you know i would definitely or so actually in my own yard right now so i you know i monitor a lot i monitor a lot and i had three colonies that kind of spiked at the end of the season last year in october and so i i retreated them and i had to go back in november and monitor these three colonies one more time and the weather was not perfect and i was i got kind of Careless, and I killed a queen during that monitoring. He said, "Ah." Oh shoot. I didn't mean to do that, but it's a, it's a big populous colony. I got healthy bees. They're just going to have to sit here and idle until, uh, until spring. And so over the last uh, couple of weeks and on warm days, I'll go out and uh, give them a frame of open brood, a frame of fresh bees to, you know, try to keep that population going and keep that brood pheromone going. And if they have an opportunity, you know, maybe they'll make a queen. So, uh, but, yeah, I think that brood pheromone does make a difference in tamping down those land workers. That's a good point.
0: That's why I like it. Just many times, there, there's another beekeeper I've talked about that, about all the actions that could be classified under you know beekeeper nerve pills and, and that's the equivalent you know just just mm-hmm. give them some open brood and that'll settle them down and give me more information next time now um i want yeah, to go back time. To, exactly to what you were talking about opening the brood nest when when you're approaching swarm season this to me once i learned to open the brood nest i might it cut down on spring swarming dramatically because i could buy so much time and get a get a bigger uh cluster of bees going for the when the nectar started coming in talk about um how you open a brood nest.
1: Yeah, and how I decide if it needs to be opened or not. So that that's a good question. So when I'm inspecting a colony, so let me go back a little bit and tell you what my colonies look like. So mostly I have a 10 frame deep, I have a queen excluder, then I have a medium feed super above that, and then any surplus supers above that. So I'm trying to keep my brood all in that 10 frame deep. So it's important for me to make sure that she has plenty of room to lay so when I'm a, and I like the system because number one, again, I do a lot of monitoring, so I know where the queen is. She's in the bottom box, below the excluder. The other thing I like about it is when I pull that medium super off, that just tells me right there how much food that colony has. Right, if that super's really light, I need to think about it. If it's really heavy, I don't have to think about it. Uh, but I get down into that, into that deep, and when I'm into March, April, May. I'm really so I'm looking at with the brood pattern, is the brood healthy? Do I have enough pollen? Do I have do I have enough honey? Do I have enough bees? But the other thing that I'm looking at is do I have enough empty cells for her to lay in? And if I don't, you know, what do I need to do? Sometimes it means, you know, soap. I'm, I'm sure you've seen some colonies that they just seem to be hoarding pollen. You know, you'll have like three frames of wall-to-wall pollen in the brood nest. I mean, that's good, but uh, that's just taking up some space that I think that she needs to lay. So I'll, I'll, I might take one of those out, or if I have. um you know extra frames of honey I can pull some of that out and and pop a, a frame of foundation or, or a drawn comb right into the bill uh, th- so those frames of honey if I have a full frame of honey that I pull out kind of hang it up in my shed let the bees clean it out and so the next time I need a, a frame of open comb of empty comb it's right there so that's how, that's how I play it
0: but
1: that, again, yeah. there's a lot
0: of different ways of skin that cat. <laughs> yes, yeah, and the, which is so true with every single thing in, in beekeeping, because I use all eight frame mediums. So t- to me, it's so easy to, that since I can swap the frames around, you know, I can uh, kind of mm-hmm. alternate and just pull things up one box up and then kind of checkerboard open comb with comb they're working on. And then, of course, you have to tell the beginners, yeah. now be careful with this, because if, it, if we're still having cold nights, you've got to have enough bees to cover that whole space that you're making a brood nest
1: yeah so you don't want to break up that brood nest too much you don't want to put two pieces of empty comb right next to each other um you wouldn't want to put two pieces of foundation right next to each other and uh, so uh if it's nice and warm you probably could put you know a, a brood empty comb brood brood empty comb you know uh, kind of space it out a little bit but you, have to be, you do have to be a little bit careful when it's still chilly that you don't spread them too far. But I will say, I was thinking about this the other day, I've never seen a colony fall out for having too much space in the, in the spring, right? So that's not a leading cause of colony law, right? And so I think the risk is, I think it's, it's not as great as uh, folks might think.
0: Well, that's a good way to look look at it because unless I mean unless you're still having hard freezes, the worst likely to happen would be they would have some chill brood and they'd drag it out and start all over again right on that brood versus yep. if you lose your swarm um I, I to me, I see beginners underestimating the damage of losing a swarm to. Um, to what's left behind because it's it's like, like they you know they've lost all, most of the bees and now they're going to roll the dice on making a queen and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Yeah,
1: so that is a that is a risky bet the uh, getting that new queen back so that that uh, process can fall apart. And uh, so I think I've kind of so I used to say you know I'd be inspecting inspecting a colony, it's clear that there was a swarm and I would say, well, you had a swarm, you know, I would estimate how many days or weeks ago, and the deacon would say, uh, I didn't see it swarm, this hive didn't swarm. And I was like, oh, okay, right, fair enough, let me back it up a little bit. You had a queen event of some sort. <laughs> may or may not have been a swarm, but you definitely had a queen event, and uh, so we need to deal with that. So I do want to let folks know that because you didn't see your colony swarm that doesn't mean they didn't swarm
0: (laughs) that is so true i i I have i had one mentor that swore he had never had a swarm and i said well how did you manage that he said i just Uh never look up i don't look up in the trees and i've never had a swarm (laughs) that's one way (laughs) but i am so with you on that um what I hate is if you had, you know, four days of cold rain in the spring. And then, of course, I'm going to be at work. The, then the sun's uh-huh. going to come out. It's going to get, and I'm just like, oh, man, I'm losing some right this minute. I'm just feel sure.
1: Man, so I put up a few swarm traps in my yard. Uh, and uh, so I'll, I have a lot of nuke, uh equipment, deeps and mediums. And I'll set a, a nuke up with a medium on it and then put a piece of old drawn comb in the top you know, in that medium, so I got lots of uh, space in the bottom and uh, spreads it down with a little swarm commander and uh, that's been a uh, winning combo in my yard.
0: <laughs> that's great. I've tried. So f- so far mine just don't, you know, of course I live in the middle of a huge forest so they, they look at my uh-huh. swarm traps and go, yeah, that's that's nothing compared to what we got up here. So, But I'm still trying. You know, that's a thought a second ago. Another thing that beginners, it's hard to understand that how the bees do not see foundation as a additional space you know they Mm -hmm. if you put drawn comb in they're like oh my god look at this we've got to stay here and do all this but if you put foundation in they just don't see that as space until they have time to draw it out yeah it
1: depends on how many how many young bees you got in the colony so the other thing is i see new beekeepers putting foundation above a queen excluder, and that's not going to play. The the bees typically don't are not motivated to pass through the queen excluder uh, to draw a comb. Right? So people will say, well, I gave them space, but they still swarmed. What's going on here? And uh, a lot of times it's that they put a queen excluder on and they kind of ignored that space. So to get around that, uh, you could either... So bees will go through a queen excluder to get to some brood. So if you can pull a frame of brood up above that queen excluder, that's going to bring them up and get them drawn that comb. The other thing you can do is put that, uh, super on without the queen excluder, let them get up in there and start working at some. And then once uh, they start working it, you can shake those beets back downstairs, put the clean excluder on, go again. A lot of different ways to do that. But it is very hard to get uh, bees motivated to, to move through an excluder.
0: Yes, they have. there has to be something on the other side of it to make them want to pass through.
1: Yeah, brood or, or a frame of honey. It's like, oh, okay, let's go up there.
0: Right, right. Well, I want to, um, this is something that after one of your podcasts, I had all these listeners write me because I had told them I was going to try to get you on the show and say, ask Lewis about about this mite monitoring to do with the freezer. That I think you Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. So so talk talk me through your and I know you have some videos I believe someone told me that. And I will link those in the show notes, but talk me through your process of monitoring.
1: Yeah. So I have a lot of, well, for me, I have a lot of bees. I have 30 colonies and I monitor every queen right colony six times a season. So that's a lot of monitoring and it is hot and humid in Rutherfordton, North Carolina. (laughs) So this is what kind of got me on this on this thing. So and I say, look, if you wanna if you wanna make a process a little easier, you need to find someone who's like a little above average smart, but really above average lazy. Like you need someone that can, that really likes to not work. And so I'm about average smart, but I am above average lazy. So those are the best where the inventors. Came yeah. From. yeah. <laughs> And so I said, well, and I also used to do bee research, and this is how we would do it in the lab. So when we were looking for mice, we would just collect samples in the field and then take them back to the lab, throw them in the freezer, and then someone else would process samples. So I basically just kind of co-opted that method. So I take uh, Ziploc bags, uh, I basically have a little a kit, it's got Ziploc bags in it, quart size, and have uh, little tabs of index card paper and a pencil. And so I'll write the colony number on that piece of paper and throw it in the bag. So if I write it with pen- with a pen, that ink is gonna run, but I'll use pencil. No problem. A colony ID goes into the bag. When I'm doing my regular inspection, I'll just, I, I like to identify the queen. If I can, I'll identify her, make sure she's on a sample. I'll dip that frame of bees into my tub get a half cup scoop into my bag, and then just throw that bag back in the bucket, go to the next colony. It really doesn't take a lot of extra time to collect that sample when you're doing those regular inspections. And so that was my goal, is to be able to kind of get in and out of the apiary as quick as possible, just because I'm a big kind of sweaty guy and I don't like sweating. And so I want to minimize my time out there. And it has really been a, a good method. So once I get them And and so I can uh, go to work during the day, come home at night, and I can go through, you know, five or ten colonies, grab those samples, throw them in the freezer. I could process those samples in the morning, or I could go back in the apiary and get, you know, five or ten more, however once I get back into the kitchen, I'll pull a sample out of the freezer. I have basically a, a strainer system on the bottom. I got a bucket that's catching the alcohol wash. The uh, above that I have a colander with a strainer on it. So I'm just using a, a, a mesh paint strainer from Home Depot. It's that's actually what I use my to strain my honey. It's just a five gallon strainer that goes into a paint bucket. So that's wrapped around this colander, and then I have another colander above that that catches the bees. So the top colander holds the bees but allows the and alcohol to go through. The next one uh, catches the mites, but allows alcohol to go through and the bucket catches the alcohol. And I just recycle that alcohol back into the next sample. Uh, But anyway, I'll transfer from the Ziploc bag to a jar of windshield washer fluid, shake that, dump it in the top of the colander, and then I'll Transfer the liquid back to my jar and then I'll go to the kitchen sink and agitate both those colanders and wash the bees and to to wash the mites into that the paint strainer and then I can count the mites from there. Easy peasy. And if I'm not sure about the sample size, I can also count the bees to make sure that I got. Uh, you know, good sample size, and it has really streamlined uh, streamlined streamline things for me. And I'm I'm asking around for folks to uh, make suggestions. What do they do to to ease the the pain of monitoring? It's, it's really important work. We talk about powdered sugar and alcohol washes in the field a lot. And that's important. And if you have just two or three colonies, that's a good method. But if you have 30, 40, 50 colonies, you might need a little, Yeah, you know, might need to streamline a little bit. So I'm interested to hear uh, how other folks do it and how my current method could be improved.
0: Do you have a video of, of the kitchen portion of this method?
1: I do. I'll send it to you.
0: Oh, good. OK. I was wondering if you had it posted somewhere so I could share it, share it with folks.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I have, there's two videos. One is the collection, and really it's just a standard, my standard collection. The collection is the same whether I'm doing a uh, powdered sugar or alcohol wash in the field or doing this thing in the kitchen. My, my, uh, Apple collection is the same, and then there, there's a video of the processing in the in the kitchen.
0: Great. And I, I had a listener ask, I think he had seen both of these, and his question was, the bees that have been in the freezer, and then you're going to process them later, do they require the alcohol still, if, if they've already died then from the freezer, do they require the alcohol to get the mites off, or is that because they're not always dead?
1: No, they're definitely dead, and that is a good question that I don't know the answer to, and that is on my list of things to look at, this coming. Season. So I think I'm going to take some out and just put them in my strainer and just wash them under the sink and see how many mics I get and then put them back into my little shaker jar and see if I get any more mics. But that is a good. Uh, so I do not know. Uh, answer to that, it might be that I don't need to. I don't need that intermediate step. So I'm going to try to do uh, some experiments uh, this year to discern that. But that's a great question.
0: Well, the the asker, I think I believe he's a retired engineer. So he asks great questions whenever he writes in. Yeah. Um, well, I have to just give you a shout out because you are the one that really encouraged me to get to up my monitoring game and to get the numbers. Well, well I went with the alcohol wash because I was like, you know, if I'm going to do this. I want a good hard count. You know, I don't know how well those bees do after being shaken that long in powdered sugar. Anyway, so I'm like, okay, uh-huh. you know, this little handful. They're gonna take it for the team, and you know, help me keep keep the rest of the bees alive. But it has been uh, really great because. I, I feel like I'm making decisions better in terms of selecting what queens I'm working with, and then mm-hmm. and also just you know having having a, a I guess a, a quantitative figure on how this particular hive is doing and mm-hmm. connecting the mite count number with how that brood nest looks and and getting that the the feel of how of how they're doing it has really it's taken it to a new level. So thank you for for getting me over the hump to do that.
1: I think it really is. A- important to, you know, if, you, if you're going to make good decisions, you need good information. So just same as we want to know what queen status is before we go making decisions, and I think even more so for mites. I think mites are responsible for between 70 and 85% of our bee health problems, if not more. I would like to see everybody get out there and do all this monitoring and say, hey, Lewis, we did all this monitoring, but our bees are still dying. So I don't think that's true, but I invite people to prove me wrong on that. And, and uh, I just want people to get up. So I don't care if you treat or if you don't treat, do your thing. But I do want you to know what's going on. I think it's really important for folks to, to understand mite dynamics. The other thing I would say for, for new beekeepers is you, are, you need to understand honeybee biology. You're going to be managing a colony of bees, but you're also, at the same time, managing a colony of mites. They need to understand that. And the, the quicker you accept that, I think the easier your path is going to be. But, but you know how I feel about mites, right? So-
0: <laughs> Absolutely. You, you are like, you're like the mite warrior, Lewis. So I, I get you. <laughs> but, but listen, I mean, it, it, the, the counts have been interesting. I helped out in a, friend's yard and what was fascinating is you know we were getting these low counts like low count low count low count and then all of a sudden there's mm-hmm. one that's just crammed with you know and you're like what the heck is yeah. going on with these so exactly. yeah yeah it gets the big red x so in terms really of using. Want.
1: yeah that's, that really is what I want people to see that and why I'm trying to encourage folks to not just subsample the yard because I think I think 10% of the colonies in the yard are off the chart. And if you're subsampling, you're going to miss them. And that, that little uh, that outlier or the outlier, they're going to wear you out. And you know, so it's just really important to have that information. But yeah. But so thank you for, thank you for doing that work, Lee.
0: It's also given me just an additional data point of when I'm picking which queen I'm going to make more of. And it's not the only thing I go with, but if she's just a great queen, good tempered, you know, beautiful honey, beautiful brood nest, and she has a low mite count, I'm like, yes, she's the one for the, for this right, year. Right. Yeah. Well, um, <laughs> t- t- tell me what, do you have any um, speaking engagements lined up at any of the conference Conferences coming up?
1: Uh, I'll be so I, have, I do have a workshop at the conference in New Bern, That's March fifth, sixth, and seventh, I believe. And I'm going to be talking about well the importance of, of a robust monitoring program. And basically, I'm going to I have all the numbers from my monitoring and management program from 2019. So I'm going to share you know what I discovered in my bee yard through the year, and essentially what I discovered is what we just talked about. Almost at all of my samplings, there's an outlier that's dead. That, you know, it's I got to catch it if I don't catch it. It's gonna it's gonna bite me, and so that was that's what I saw in my monitoring this year. So we're talking about that. I just kind of did the similar talk at the uh, at a workshop at the American Beekeeping Federation meeting in Schaumburg in early January. That so that was a lot of fun, and so bee school season kicks off for me this Saturday. Uh, so I do a lot of pest and disease talks for the bee schools. and so I think I'm booked every Saturday for the next seven Saturdays with, with bee schools, and um, and so the season's starting to ramp up.
0: I got a hold of you just in time. Well, there's one. One final thing that <laughs> you know, I, I realized I forgot to ask about in Western North Carolina, where that's, that's your, your territory. hmm. I think a lot of the the beginners don't understand that you know sometimes it's not the actual mite; it is the horrendous virus that the mite is spreading around. What kind of what kind of viruses activity are you seeing in Western North Carolina? So, so we can't really
1: easily test for viruses uh, the way we can for mites or Nosema or Tracheomites or American brood. I mean, we can NCDA doesn't test for viruses but NC State will do it for a fee. So I have had some, I had an unusual case in 2018 uh, where a beekeeper, he had know, seven or eight colonies in the apiary, and one was just continually puking bees, right? So it looked like a pesticide kill. And when I went to to look at it, it really did look like a pesticide kill, this one colony in this apiary. And I said, man, and I called the pesticide inspector and we opened a pesticide investigation. And I, I inspected the colony, low mite, load. This was in probably June. Great looking colony, beautiful brood pattern, but twitching and dead bees in front of the colony and some twitching bees inside. And I said, you know, I, I, this is possibly a pesticide kill, and we're going to investigate. I think they're going to be okay, but if this continues, call me. And so she called back in a couple of weeks, and she said, it's still going on. So oh, that's interesting. So I invited my boss, uh, Don Hopkins, to come up to ride with me, and we looked at it together, and it, it looked the same as it had looked two weeks before. And so we were able to collect some of those bees, and we talked NC State into doing a, a virus scan for us, and it was off the chart, uh, chronic bee paralysis virus. So, it was, so, I have some videos of that. So, it, it was it was probably the most interesting thing I've seen as a, as a bee inspector, but knowing virus levels or identifying the viruses, that's something that's pretty hard to do, or you can do it, but it's expensive. And so, we do spend a lot of time talking about mites, but you're exactly right. It's the viruses that are doing the damage. There's no treatment for the viruses. So it's really important that we handle those mites. So I think about it the same way that I think about mosquitoes and public health, right? So how do we keep our mosquito-borne, mosquito-borne diseases in check? We keep the mosquitoes in check. And I think that's the same, same uh, method we need to, to take with these mites and the health of our bees.
0: Right. I was wondering about um, chronic paralysis because I saw it for the first time a few years ago. Since then, I have seen it in many yards uh, in Yancey County, N- normally not the not the large-scale death kind, but just the, the twitchy, jumpy kind of spastic bee activity. Uh-huh.
1: Yeah, yeah. I will send you uh, a link to my videos. So they're on a uh, like a Google, they are in the cloud. And I'll send you a link to that folder. There's about four different videos as well as the uh, virus analysis. It's fairly
0: interesting. Cool, cool. Wait, see, what, what a geek. It's like, oh, cool, a video on viruses. Yay, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. Well, Lewis, it has been such fun to talk to you. And I'm very honored that you would come on the podcast, take your time to talk to me. And I just appreciate all the work you do for for all of our beekeepers in the area.
1: Well, I promise you, it's my pleasure. I, I feel very fortunate to be in this spot. And I love doing this work. Can I back up a little bit?
0: Absolutely.
1: Tina Sebastian interview, <laughs> which was awesome. Oh,
0: I'm so glad. I'm just <laughs> so, so honored that you listened to it. Thank you.
1: <laughs> so you mentioned uh, a group uh, in North Carolina was doing a good job with mentoring, and that group, the Orange County Bee.
0: Oh, good. That is the I could not remember the name. Yes, that's it.
1: Yeah, and they're not pods; they're clusters, right? Oh, so course. like a cluster right. of bees. Yeah, right.
0: <laughs> exactly. Okay, and, I was in the dolphin mode there. Okay, right. Okay.
1: Yeah, that. Uh, That Orange County Club, that's where I learned beekeeping. So that, I would not be where I'm sitting today without that association. And they've done a really good job mentoring and they continue to do good work. And I uh, wanted to put that out there. They they are doing... good
0: stuff. I'm so glad you remember you of course knew their name because I remembered their presentation from the conference but I could not remember what the name of it was so that's great so bravo
1: so it kind of of started out basically we just put beekeepers on a map and said hey you guys are close to each other why don't you get together because it is important to read and to go to bee school but there is no substitute for getting into colonies and seeing what's right and what's wrong and I can't stress that enough to new beekeepers it is important to have a mentor but it's also important to have what i would call them a bee buddy so someone that's at your same level and so you can look at your colony you can look at their colony you guys can bounce stuff off of each other i think that's as important as having a mentor and they will be as influential in your beekeeping as a mentor and they'll probably be you know lifelong friends i have found them to be lifelong friends those people that helped me along the way important
0: I agree. I have made some of the best friendships in recent years around the bees, so I like that the the bee buddy and the mentor. Um, th- that's an important, yeah. And also, you have to have somebody to talk about bees because the spouse is going to tire of it really quickly. Well, thank you so much. I hope you have a wonderful rest of the weekend. Good luck with all those bee schools. If if anybody's looking for a podcast, just turn them on to it.
1: All right. Thank you, Lee. Take thank care. you.
0: Okay, I'll talk to you later. Bye bye. Bye bye.